listeners. Today, special Halloween episode for you all. I hope. Oh, <coughs> <coughs> um, uh, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, welcome to the Halloween special of Pop Swap with myself and Carlos. Enjoy. Well, that was spooky, Dean. Welcome to our Halloween special. The entire podcast will now be conducted by me in this ominous voice. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Say hello to everyone, Dean. Hello. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome. Welcome to the Halloween special. I've said welcome quite a few times now already. <laughs> welcome. Yes. Welcome. <laughs> But yeah, this is our Halloween special for you all. Yeah, so we're going to go through a few spooky treats we've enjoyed over this season. We're a little bit late again. We're late the... because we had to watch the spooky treats on the spooky night of last night. <laughs> that is true, yeah. And appropriately, uh, in true Halloween spirit, I was actually cut open myself recently by medical professionals. So oh dear. That's, oh dear. that's another reason <laughs> for this delay. <laughs> Dean will have a Halloween story for us all. <laughs> yes. So uh, apologies, but we're here now and we have some nice choices for you to enjoy, hopefully. Yes, indeed. So what did you watch? Uh, where shall I start off? Right. Yeah. My first choice... I guess, of what I've been watching recently enough was the movie Vivarium, which is available on Shudder, a streaming service you can get hold of. I just downloaded it last night. Did you? Oh, great yes, stuff. Yes, yeah, I did. It, I signed up for that free trial you were telling me about. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sell this service, but I guess for <laughs> anyone who's like a horror fan, Shudder is like Netflix, I guess, for horror fans. Um, and there's plenty of great stuff on there worth checking out. So a few of my choices uh, on that service. The first one is Vivarium anyway. It's the second feature by Irish director Lorcan Finnegan, who first caught my attention uh, with a short film that he made that was really good called Foxes, which I think you can kind of dig out online. Okay. Uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, that was uh, That's set in an abandoned housing estate um, after the financial crisis. Yeah. And it tells the story of this bored freelance photographer um, who's bored at home with nothing to do and she spots some foxes in her back garden and then things get a little bit strange after that. I won't spoil it too much, but it's a, it's a really good short film. It's well worth checking out. We love when things get strange. Yeah. <laughs> and um, his follow-up movie after that, his debut feature was called Without Name, which was a horror film. And I enjoyed that, but it felt I was left feeling a little bit disappointed with it. Okay. Um, overall but it still impressed me with how well he as a director develops a, a really great atmosphere in his movies and Vivarium for me is uh it shows a lot more promise of that short film and it shares some similarities actually in the sense that it's also a story about another young couple that are trapped in an abandoned housing estate together mm -hmm. is it set in Ireland it is well it's hard to say I assume that it is because there are a few characters in there that speak with Irish accents but I'll I'll get to that in a second actually because um to jump ahead like that they've it stars Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots who are both okay. great in it they're really really good but I didn't quite understand why given that it was an Irish production they have like an American and an English person yeah. in the 
in the lead roles. Like to me, they're great anyway, the wonderful performances. So it's understandable. And I guess having bigger names were drawing an audience. But I think for an yeah. Irish film, it's just a shame that they didn't utilise some Irish talent in the acting leads was yeah. one thing that I thought. Um, but yeah, but to go back to the actual premise itself, uh, it's familiar as well to, there's a Twilight Zone episode called, um, what is it, Stop Over in a Quiet Town? where a couple find themselves stranded in this artificial place and they wake up into one morning. So it's uh, it does have that Twilight zone sort of feel as a movie as a whole. Um, yeah. And definitely sort of a little reference to that one in there. With the visuals side of it, I quite enjoyed the fact that it was, there's a certain creepiness to it because it's got like a childlike quality uh, in the visual effects department, which I quite enjoyed. It was a reminiscent of, there's another film I really enjoy from the 80s called Paper House. Okay. And that's got these kind of like almost hand-drawn childlike kind of visuals and the, the, these nightmarish sequences. And like this reminds me a bit of that. And I enjoyed that. It gave it a certain sort of creepy atmosphere. That yeah. was cool. It's weirdly sort of advertised as a sci-fi film though, uh, which I don't entirely agree with. But if it is going to be sci-fi, then I guess it's more in line with something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it kind of dances that line yeah. between horror and then slightly ambiguous sci-fi. I find sometimes with horror films, how they're marketed is not really how they should be marketed. Even though they are horror films, it's yeah. They're always. I think some of the best horror films are like a blend of one or two different genres, perhaps leaning towards psychological thriller or sci-fi or something else. You know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this one is like one of those ones that would be difficult to pigeonhole really because it it is like I say it's ambiguous enough that it doesn't it doesn't explicitly hint at what the overall themes are that are going on. They're just kind of just yeah. hinted at. It it leaves you guessing a bit, which is nice. Uh it's got some nice comments actually about the some ideas about like parenting and just kind of growing up as a couple and taking on responsibilities and becoming part of the rat race and stuff like that. It, it makes some interesting comments on those themes, uh, which yeah. I quite enjoyed as well. Uh, there's plenty that I loved about it. It's well worth checking out. But the reason that it doesn't end up one of my highlighted choices is I've got a few issues with some aspects of the script. It kind of expects you to suspend your disbelief a bit, uh, that characters have no way of contacting the outside world. So. Yeah especially when it comes to things like checking their phones. I can't even remember if there's a scene in the film where they address the fact that they check their phone signal or not. But it, if they do, then it's not something they ever check again. It's just yeah. kind of like sort of washed over like, okay, they can't get in touch with anybody. That's been dealt with. And yeah. uh, there's a few moments like that and some other aspects of the plot that lack a bit of common sense, which for me was a slight weakness. But like if you're willing to ignore all of that, and go along with the ride then it's uh it's well worth checking out um mm. I, I really really enjoyed it cool to take a little bit of a break from our horror film discussion i'm gonna give you all some reading materials for this spooky season and of course i'm gonna talk about a comic book so my first choice for this highlighted section of our halloween special is gideon falls Gideon Falls is a comic book series written by Jeff Lemire with artwork by Andrea Sorrentino. It's described as rural psychological horror slash urban mystery, and the story follows two main protagonists on parallel journeys. One guy is the newly appointed Catholic preacher in the town of Gideon Falls, and the other guy is an apparently insane and reclusive young man 
who was obsessed with digging through the garbage for discarded nails and screws. Both characters begin to see eerie visions of a black barn that may be more than just visions. We learn about this otherworldly building and how it has appeared and reappeared throughout history, bringing death and madness in its wake. In a cross between The Twilight Zone and Lost, the series takes your mind on a multiverse-bending trip full of intensely addictive plotlines and rich characterization. Lemire and Sorrentino deftly tackle themes of obsession, mental illness and faith in this mind-bending series. Sorrentino's artwork is truly some of the most creative storytelling I've ever seen and he compliments Lemire brilliantly. His genius panelling layout, consisting of twisty surreal imagery and scattered fragmented squares, helped to portray Norton, our young reclusive man, as a fractured mind state. With the series ending with issue 28 this coming December, now is the perfect time to read Gideon Falls. Um, how about yourself, Carlos? What have you been enjoying? Well, last night, after going out to the apartment rooftop and watching some fireworks, we decided to go a little bit old school. And I watched an old childhood favourite of mine. Okay. Um, the Omen from 1976. Ah, the original excellent. Omen, not the Liev Schreiber 2006 <laughs> carbon copy. I, I, I may be a little bit... Um, what's the word, uh, unfair <laughs> to <laughs> the film's production, but it's from 1976. It feels like it's from 1976, but I still, it's got that unique charm of horror from that time period. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we watched that. I it's It definitely has aged, <laughs> shall we say. I haven't watched it since I was probably in my teens, but it, it's aged and, and not quite for the better, but I've, it's got that charm. And I was noticing it, especially especially with the acting, the delivery. It's, I don't know, me like me and my old man used to slag off Gregory Peck and do the, oh, I've, <laughs> I've heard you and I want you to hear me. You know, like, you go away, sir. And it's like, dude, what, what are you, what are you doing? You know, but of course it's Gregory Peck. He's a master of his craft. He was a master of his craft. I'm not gonna slag him off for that. But I think the big draw for that film is all of the extra incidents that happened in the production of the movie. So all the side things that happened. I don't know if you've ever read anything about that. Yeah, well, it's it's odd you mention that actually because uh, sorry, I better cut over you now about yeah. this. But um, it's weird that you mention that because I wasn't going to talk about this. During our episode, I'd watched again on that service. There's a, a documentary series called um, "Why Is It Cursed Movies?" Yes, and it covers five specific productions, and one of them is all about the Omen. It's well yeah. worth checking out. Actually, that's really good. But yeah, I know, I know a little bit about the the madness on yeah, the, the set. Of the it's Omen. crazy, and it it adds. I think it adds. If you read up a little bit before you sit down and watch the movie, it adds to to the experience of watching the film, you know, because the film mm-hmm. in itself is a bit ridiculous and it's it's quite, you know, oh, he's the Antichrist, son of the devil, and he's got these apostates from hell coming to protect him. <laughs> you know, it's it's ridiculous. But when you find out what actually happened to some of the production crew, it's crazy. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> oh my God, the devil is real. <laughs> so um, there's a decapitation scene 
right, where I can't remember his name now, but it's the guy who was in Titanic and he also played Bob Cratchit in the 1984 version of Christmas Carol. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm going to completely forget his name now as well. It's David, what's his name now? Is is it David Spade, not Spader or something? I was actually looking him up because I've got... Um, I've downloaded a movie of his called Nightwing, which is about him facing bats in the outback somewhere. Oh, David Warner is his name. David Warner, there you go, yeah. Yes. So there's a scene where David Warner himself um, gets decapitated by a reversing truck that is carrying panes of glass, and the glass decapitates the guy, right? Because he's on his way, he wants to kill Damien, the little antichrist fucker. And... After production of the movie, the visual effects producer, basically, was involved in a decapitation incident himself where he was in a car crash and his wife, who was sitting in the passenger side, was decapitated by a pane of glass from the windshield, basically. And you're like, this is outrageously ironic, tragic, and is the confirmation of the devil. <laughs> there was something in that documentary actually about that one moment that uh <laughs> that was just i don't know with, with these things like that's what's very good about that documentary and what we're checking out is the fact that it, it's it's quite it's quite a skeptical documentary as well and it's yeah. quite a compassionate one actually and an interesting one about the tragedy that occurs in those instances and actually interviewing yeah. the people involved and uh sorry yeah so the, the bit with the car crash they mentioned that um where it took place as well there was a sign further away for the area that they're at yeah. and the sign was for a little village or a town called omen like uh. spelled o-m-m-e-n and the directions were like it states that it is like something like 66.6 kilometers away or something absurd like on the road sign hilarious so there's like people sort of like picking at straws there to make make it seem spooky um, it's outrageous yeah. there, it, like, and, and that's not even the only story and it just adds to the experience of watching the film because we were sitting there looking it up you know there's a scene with um, baboons or something mm-hmm. and the baboons are going crazy and apparently in production they stole a baby baboon in, from the zoo and put it in the car so that all the baboons would go crazy and run towards the car and you're like mm-hmm. oh my god Peter would have a field day if this movie was made today you know? <laughs> but um yeah, so we watched The Omen. It's it's quite campy, 70s horror, but it's got a quality that I think a lot of modern horrors forgot, maybe, up until the last 10 years or so, um, because there's been a, like a horror resurgence the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. But maybe in the early 2000s, horror forgot about it, and it's the subtle scares. So it's the more disturbing aspect of, of horror that is underlying and they don't rely on jump scares. Like, there's not one jump scare in The Omen, but it's unsettling, you know? Mm. And I think movies like The Exorcist or um, Halloween, well, Halloween is a bit more of a slasher film, but it's still a bit more subtle in a way. So you're not going, oh, demon jumps out of the corner. They do a slow pan, and there's a shadow that walks across the screen and goes, ah! Yeah. (laughs) It's... It's it's a bit more subtle. It's a bit more intricate, I guess. And mm-hmm. the almond has that. So, if you want to treat yourself to a bit of classic, scary cinema, the almond's a good one. 
yeah, I think it's quite theatrical for the for the time as well with the Omen. I think it was quite a theatrical production, and it was like it was quite a big star release. Like yeah. that, that that's the thing I think because of the success of things like The Exorcist that came before. Yeah, like when you say like that. I don't think necessarily for me personally in my taste that seventies horror is campy or anything like that. I think the opposite. I think there's some amazing productions from that decade. But um, I guess riding off the success of some of those massive hits that yeah. weren't expected to be things like the exorcist but then it kind of like i say it's sort of making it into a big almost blockbuster-esque production at the time yeah. of like a big star vehicle um so it is quite over the top and it is quite camp like you say and theatrical but that's part of the fun of watching it i think exactly um, yeah yeah. I, don't, yeah like, I don't mean camp as in it's it's stupid i mean yeah, yeah. camp is in more theatrical and lavish more yeah lavish. You, yeah exactly yeah. that's a good word yeah um but i mean like gregory peck i think is perfect in that movie because he that's that's the kind of movie it is it's like <laughs> this you know very refined individual in quite a you know scary situation what are you doing <laughs> sir you know it's it's <laughs> it's very um yeah lavish and some yeah. of the set design as well, some of the places they go to the locations, it's um, it's like an Indiana Jones movie or something. They go <laughs> on this little investigation quest through Italy and Israel, and you're like, oh, all the locations where the devil has been and all that. <laughs> yeah, the grave the graveyard scenes with the Rottweilers as well, like slow mo. That always stayed with me a little bit. Those images, yes. so they're oh, cool. that was the other story that I read. Actually, the dog handler of those um the Rottweilers in the movie was mm -hmm. killed by a Rottweiler during ah. production. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> no way. I actually have a really random, it's, this is of no relevance to the listener whatsoever, I guess, but it's fun to mention it. Now you've, you've hit that one because um, I went to college with a girl and she got, um, she got some pictures out of a wallet the once because we were chatting about horror films and stuff. And she showed me a picture of a little Rottweiler puppy. And I was like, Oh, and she's like, what's that? And she said, this puppy is related to the one in the omen. It's like my <laughs> my auntie or something was friends with the handler of <laughs> the dogs on that production. Gosh. So it's actually part of uh, that lineage of uh, it's one of those Rottweilers, which is quite fun. One little thing as well, I will say, uh, in addition to the omen as well, since you were chatting about it, is yeah. amazing soundtrack. Like the score to that oh, film is brilliant. so good. Yeah, yeah, it's like just lifts the whole film. I think personally, yeah, like, yeah. It's, and I think horror is like that as well. It it depends greatly on the sound and the music to set the tone and the mood and the atmosphere of the film. Yeah. And The Omen nails that. Because yeah, the definitely. music is just as creepy as the plot or the situation itself, you know? Yeah, definitely. Scare Me is the impressive debut feature of Josh Rubin, who writes, directs, and stars in this dark comedy chamber piece. The setup is intentionally familiar, making nods to horror movie cliches such as the isolated writer in a spooky cabin. However, during his stay, this aspiring writer bumps into another writer, played in spectacular fashion by Aya Cash, who having already written a hit novel herself, is now busy working on her follow-up. A power outage one night leaves the pair looking for entertainment, so one suggests to the other they take turns flexing their storytelling muscles with some spooky tales. Rather than a typical horror anthology where stories within a story are dramatised in the manner of something like Creepshow, Scare Me instead uses the stories as a performative device to showcase the talents of its two leads and sink its comical teeth into the characters telling the tales. 
It's a comedy horror with the emphasis sided more towards comedy, yet it's perfectly aware of its genre influences in style and tone. This results in smart self-aware humour in the vein of Shaun of the Dead, mixed with nods to The Shining, Misery and many other horror films Ruben is clearly a fan of. Along with plenty of mocking of the petty jealousy amongst creative types, reminiscent of something like Sidney Lumet's Death Trap. All four of its minuscule cast grab your attention immediately, with layer performances full of surprises that will have you laugh out loud one moment and then be slightly on edge the next. Comedy and horror for me tread a fine line between each other, and if you're a fan of either, then Scare Me is confidently made entertainment for fans of either genre. So yeah, that's the arm, and Dan, what else did you watch? Okay, uh, let me have a think. So the next one, I guess, worth having a chat about is another one also available on Shudder. Uh, again, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> uh, called The Cleansing Hour. Um, it's a feature-length adaptation of the director Damien Levesque's short film of the same name. And this one, I'm going to give you a bit of a warning now for this one, right? So if you're anything like me, and your taste in horror is more sort of subtle and psychological. And you Absolutely. prefer something that focuses on mood a bit. Absolutely. Yes. Well, this might not be the film for you. Is what I will say. <laughs> <laughs> because it is not that type of movie. Uh, but if also like me, you enjoy horror that's a fun roller coaster ride of like really hokey thrills. Uh, oh, also. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Then the cleansing hour is like full on turned up to 11 like insane <laughs> entertainment it's very very fun to watch i'll tell you also. there are <laughs> there are two types of horror films that i like then right uh-huh. there is the uh sinister underlying you know almost meandering deeper kind of with substance horror film that might have an underlying metaphor or something mm-hmm. and it sets a mood rather than you know scaring the bollocks out of you yeah and then the second one is ridiculous you know in all fairness shit jump scares you know you can laugh at it while you're scared like while you're scared shitless and it's still a fun time um and i think towing that line between the two is kind of the perfect horror film for me <laughs> yeah it's like the it's like the fun because uh, um i mean i find i know i'm not the first one to say this but people have pointed out like the comparisons between like comedy as a genre and horror as a genre and i think especially when you sit and watch those things as an audience together then there's like the the theme park roller coaster ride aspect of being sat and watching the type of horror film that's just set out to just make you kind of like do all those things like you say just jump and scream and just at like a bunch of like excitable children like yeah. in a crowd and kind of that atmosphere is the same i think with horror it has the same sorry with comedy it has the same effect yeah. on people when they're all sat together as an audience that it's like a, a tension and release kind of thing yeah um yeah so there's not as many jump scares in this to say after saying that this doesn't really have that but it it does have this quality about it like say that it is a fairground ride kind of experience yeah uh, which makes it good fun the basic premise is to go into the plot slightly <laughs> what there is of the plot um you've got two childhood friends who run this hit online cha- online channel sorry called uh, the cleansing hour and then each episode this sexy young priest called father max he <laughs> um exercises a possessed guest live on air 
and uh, it's not much of a spoiler for me to let you know that like these exorcisms are actually faked. Yes, Let's be honest, like most yeah. exorcisms are faked. Um, <laughs> uh, but they like use <laughs> they use them as a way of like selling branded products to their fan base, basically, and making a living off of the fans. So one day. Max asks his girlfriend, due to the fact that a guest drops out of the show last minute, if she will stand in and be the next exercised, sorry, the next possessed person to be exercised live on camera. Okay. And she agrees to doing this, but the twist is, wait for it, she actually gets possessed Damn. by a real demon <laughs> all of a sudden. Let's and, watch uh, it. <laughs> yeah, this, this leads to um, the two of them uh, trying to figure out how to face up to the demon and defeat it live on air. That's that's the basic gist, yeah, of how they have to defeat the demon. Um, it's a bit of a lunatic premise, but uh, in a weird way, it kind of works. It shouldn't work, yeah, but it does. And <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's generally down to like the approach that it takes because it takes like quite a high octane, almost like an action movie sort of approach to the production, yeah. which is maybe more in line with i don't know if it is going to be in line with some type of horror i'd say it's more like when john carpenter does his action movie kind of mode so when he's doing something like escape from new york it's got that kind of like i don't know that sort of like tension about it um yeah yeah there's like this ticking clock element through the film that adds a bit of suspense revolving around the viewer count uh that keeps on building up as the movie climaxes and that adds a bit of urgency to the whole thing which i quite enjoyed as well yeah um, the acting though is a mixed bag. Some people are quite good, other people it's so-so. So wouldn't really necessarily tune into it for the acting. But uh, it's got lots of fun effects work, which it, uh, I quite enjoyed. It dares to have some pretty out there kind of creature effects at some stage, which is good. Yeah. And uh, there's one thing that stopped it from being a highlighted choice for me uh this episode it's the fact that it takes itself a little bit too seriously no fatal yeah. mistake <laughs> <laughs> so it yeah it, it's really lacking in the humor department and it's a shame because i think if it did have a sense of humor to balance it out it would be mm. more in the vein of you know when like someone like sam raimi who's a master of this who does like drag me to hell or evil dead 2 or something yeah. and there's that perfect balance between like doing like genuinely scaring the crap out of you at some stages, but also like fully embracing that hokey quality of horror at times and just making you have a, a fun time watching it. Yeah. Um, and and because there is quite a po-faced nature about the film itself, it that lets it down a little bit. And the script as well kind of strains because you can definitely tell that it was a short feature that has been yeah. extended full length and some of the bits in between feel like padding a bit because of that mm. um which was a shame but that being said it does have a really strong ending it's got a very memorable ending that kind of elevates the rest of it a little bit okay uh which is cool but uh yeah if you want to just have a blast with some friends and sit around and watch some a bit silly and fun uh then check it out it's uh it's worth worth a watch that one for that, that reason that sounds like a good you know horror film for myself and my old man yeah. 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 I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'd have a good time with that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that, that was a, a good one, I'd say, for that, for that type. Of, if you're that type of fan, you enjoy horror for that kind of reason. Okay. Um, 
So for my second highlighted portion of today's podcast Halloween special, I want to talk about another comic book series. And this time, I want to talk about one that is by none other than Robert Kirkman, writer and creator of The Walking Dead. But no, we're not going to talk about his zombie books. We're going to talk about his demons book, Outcast. Outcast follows Kyle Barnes, a man who has been plagued by demonic possession all of his life, and the local pastor who is dedicated to exorcising these demon spirits from possessed people. Kirkman allows the mysteries and secrets of Kyle's unique abilities to play out through situational dialogue, never once resorting to any form of narration. No wonder a number of his properties, including Outcast, have been adapted into TV shows. Spoilery things happen when the two protagonists unite for an investigative road trip. Along the way, they find out there may be more to this demon stuff than either of them first realised. Kirkman is a master of serialised storytelling, and there are very few writers like him that will keep you turning the pages from the get-go until the very end. Well, almost the end. Like Gideon Falls, the series will also be concluding this December after six years in publication. Pick up the series now and then watch the TV show. Yeah, how about you? Uh, what, what else has been going on in your horror life during this Halloween? Well, like I was mentioning earlier, we, we watched two movies last night after, after the uh, firework bonanza. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Hereditary was the other one because I think we wanted to mix it up and watch an actually genuinely scary modern horror film. Um, Quite possibly my favourite horror film of the last 10 years or so. And Ari Aster, I think, is a a talent to watch. He directed, wrote and directed the film. I have my issues with Midsummer, the most recent one he did last year. But Mm -hmm. Hereditary, I think, is almost perfect. Um... Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, a very creepy looking young girl. <laughs> and um, it's it's a film that for me is about, it tackles the the-, the general typical themes of horror, but it does it in a creative way. So it, it most horror films are basically metaphors for trauma, guilt, regret, uh, loss, psychological issue mental illness those kind of things and then the mm-hmm. very best horror films i feel of the, of the like modern you know resurgence of horror do that in creative ways so like if you think about originally with stephen king and it he would come up with creative ways to personify um themes of horror so with it he has the monster that manifests as the kid's greatest fears you know that's great it's it's genius yeah um and then there's another little film that i'll talk about maybe in the tangents as well that you know it it personifies the this little boy's dreams in reality um or nightmares as well and that's a movie called before i wake by mike flanagan Mm. but hereditary um i think is all about dealing with loss and mental illness that comes after and it's amazing and Tony Collette just perfects it and of course it all leads to a, some sort of satanic cult and you know it's all one little one big metaphor for that 
as she descends into madness, basically. But there are just so many chilling, disturbing scenes rather than jump scares. I don't think there's one jump scare in the film. There's more of a an unsettling tone where you're progressively more disturbed at how fucked up everything is, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's a one particular scene that creeps me out just as much as Reagan walking down the stairs backwards in The Exorcist. And it's where it pulls back and the young son who's kind of dealing with the the guilt of, you know, possibly being involved in his sister's death. Um, he wakes up and the mother, Tony Collette, is like hanging from the ceiling and then scurries across the wall and you're like, oh, Jesus, because it's super quiet. And there's no sound in it. And usually horror films will will show that scene and then do a, you know, like a, a sound effect that makes you jump. And it's usually the sound that gives you the jump scare. And what I think creatively the movie does is it goes completely silent in these moments. And it just lets you see these chilling fucking aspects of you know the people descending into madness and it just even it's terrifying like it's horrifying hereditary that's all i'll say about that (laughs) yeah there's 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 some transition points in that aren't there where um i guess it depends on the type of audience that's watching it and the the type of fan of the type of horror that we were talking about before that like the thrill ride and the kind of like the more subtle psychological fan because there's there's, I mean, I've seen the film, just so the audience know, yeah. but um, there's a there's definitely a turning point at some stage in that film where it goes from one to the other. And if you're on board with it, then I think it's fine. Um, and yeah. I'm actually quite a fan of those big sort of satanic-themed movies that you mentioned. So, like, when it transitions into that and it goes into, let's say, more... And this wouldn't be a spoiler to mention that to people, but let's say more kind of Wicker Man-esque sort of territory. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm completely on board with that as a Absolutely. viewer. Whereas I know some people that I sat and watched that film within the cinema that wouldn't have been friends of that type of thing yeah. left the cinema and were just like, oh, well, when it when all that stuff, that it kind of lost it for me <laughs> when all that stuff started going on. I was like, oh, no, I actually really liked all that aspect And then of there it. are some people who, for the first hour of the film, are completely bored because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a slow burn and it's setting everything up and they're like, wait, I'm supposed to be scared. I'm supposed to get a jump scare here, but they're not. And it's more creating a mood. And I think mm-hmm. that's, those are just, if you know, it depends what type of horror fan, as you say, you are. But yeah, um, I think he went a bit too far with the Wicker Man-esque thing with Midsummer because that was basically the Wicker Man <laughs> in broad daylight. It was the Wicker yeah. Man in broad daylight. Hundred percent. Right? So. <laughs> um, there, there's bits in it, like bits of hereditary, remote, like for me personally, when I was watching it, like that. There's a tone to it that I quite enjoyed. The paranoia of something like Rosemary's Baby, it yeah. made me think of quite a lot. Um, and then I think, like, say that that transition point, which I'm not going to be specific about this because I don't want to ruin it for viewers, but that transition point between that build up of paranoia that is does have this Rosemary's Baby kind of feel to it something happens which completely changes the course of the way things could have gone for for, for you to be 100% that okay this is possibly not psychological anymore in any yeah. way shape or form and i think once it makes that decision then it kind of goes down that line like you say of being yeah a different type of film but since i'm a fan of both types of film i'm okay with that 
Yeah, it really depends on mood. Like, and and sometimes it will take me maybe one or two watches for movies like this, where I'll sit down thinking I want campy horror with jump scares, and I just want to kind of switch off my brain and enjoy the movie and it ends up being something else. And then sometimes I'm more pleasantly surprised by the more subtle film. And depending on my mood, I might be a little bored, you know? So it mm-hmm. might take me a second rewatch to come back and really appreciate it because I wanted just to switch my brain off and <laughs> enjoy the campy horror. But Hereditary, I think, is definitely, it shows how horror films have matured over the last 10 years or so, you know, beginning with... Obviously, the Insidious trilogy, I find, was one of the biggest kind of revamps for horror in the last 10, 15 years. Obviously, we had Saw and those kind of films. It was more of the slasher kind of genre in, in the early 2000s. But I think Hereditary definitely was the peak for me of modern horror. Yeah. I think for me personally, with a lot of the horror productions, it's a case that like for me, horror has always been an avenue, avenue, sorry, of a of like a place for lots of creativity with the people involved, like to yeah. have freedom to do what they want to do, and like it, it definitely supports like the lower budget filmmaker more than any other genre out there does. Um, Blumhouse Productions, I think Blumhouse are, is an amazing production company, and I watch a lot of their movies, most of their movies, you know. Yeah, well, I think them, uh, them in particular as a studio, uh, recently enough, I think. They kind of bridge that gap for me between, I think the fact that money doesn't necessarily get invested as much as it used to do in yeah. smaller kind of genre productions from like the mid tier sort of films by the big studios. They don't tend to fund those films as much as they do anymore because a lot of the money just goes into like the the biggest vehicles out there and then the rest is safe for Oscar season or something. Yeah. So horror in a way just horror is this thing that never gets touched by that it just keeps on going underneath all of that it's not really affected too dramatically by it but i think some of the talent that maybe would have gone into some of those smaller genre pictures that mid-level kind of funding from the big studios found themselves through studios like blumhouse going into horror as a as a theme yeah and it's allowed like these voices to come out that necessarily wouldn't have got a chance Mm-hmm. Um, any other way because of the way that the industry works. Yeah. So horror is a great way in the foot in the door for them to prove their talents. Yeah. So you you get like you say this kind of like resurgence of like this modern idea of horror being taken seriously again. Yeah. Which comes in waves. I think it goes through this spell. Like every once in a while, people acknowledge the fact that horror can be great and it is a wonderful genre, mm-hmm. and then everybody just kind of ignores it for a while until it's relevant again. But yeah. Yeah. I think unlike the western it's it's a it's a genre of movies that never fully disappeared it just went through dips. Mm-hmm. And then comes back every few years or so whereas the western kind of just disappeared for a long time and then ca- came back with some you know darker grittier films like yeah, True Grit or <laughs> some Tarantino westerns, you know. But I think horror will kind of always be something that sticks around, you know. And it, you know, people, it kind of speaks to deeper psychological aspects of just people, you know. That they, they, they like seeing people like seeing their darkest fears manifested on a screen, just to you know, for a little bit of thrill seeking almost. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. I could go on a bit of a, like this could go off into, this would be too long for a podcast, possibly a bit of a tangent, but just to quickly mention it, like for me, the appeal as well is the sense that, like I say, these are like people wanting to see their nightmares brought to life or the idea of your nightmares. And like, to me, there's a deep connection, which I'd like probably save, like I say, for another podcast, but uh, b- between the idea of like the nature of dreams themselves and nightmares and the language of those visually, how we experience them and which necessarily came before. I find that quite interesting. The idea that possibly the shape, like the, the images of our dreams and the way that dreams play out in our heads shaped the way that moving images got edited and that shaped yeah. the language of cinema yeah. and whether those things are connected like which one came first like does one affect the other like that's something that fascinates me and i think that's what i've always loved about horror is it kind of taps into that idea of like just the reality of your nightmares and dreams like being brought to life almost well then i will mention the one movie now that we're talking we're going down this road i will mention the movie that i was going to talk about in the tangents but fuck it mm-hmm. Um, so Mike Flanagan made a film, one of his earlier films, it's called Before I Wake. Okay. Um, with Thomas Jane, let me check it quickly here now, uh, the, and the guy, the little kid from the room, Jacob Tremblay, he plays a young boy, an orphaned boy, um, whose dreams manifest physically when he sleeps, basically. But counter to that, whenever he has a nightmare, they also manifest physically okay. in the real world. So people who are around the little boy can see his dreams, basically. And I think it's a super creative film. Um, Kate Bosworth as well is in it. But it's like a much lesser known film. Like Mike Flanagan these days would be known for doing, um, he'd be known for doing The Haunting of uh, Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix and mm-hmm. he would have done Doctor Sleep last year so he's definitely making a name for himself now but I thought this personally I think this is probably my favourite movie of his um, and it's more of a dark fantasy movie mm-hmm. but in the same way that it personifies children's fears in the Stephen King story this little boy's kind of deep-rooted trauma and experience from how he was orphaned manifest in his nightmares. And then there's a a demon of sorts called the Canker Man. He calls mm-hmm. him the Canker Man. And when you find out at the end what the Canker Man represents, it's really thought-provoking and it's really creative. And it's it's it, what it's exactly what you imagine a 10-year-old boy would have nightmares about after what he went through. You know, mm-hmm. so I think it's it's a very personal film as well, and I think when when you can see that coming out in a movie from a director who clearly has an idea for something, and you can see, oh, this feels personal. It feels like maybe something he might have experienced himself, or some fears that he, Mike Flanagan himself had. I think yeah. that's when I really connect with a horror film. So. Yeah, I definitely need to check that out because that that actually connects with Paper House that I mentioned earlier as well. Coincidentally, like some of those themes that you just mentioned there, um, it's one that's the one one of his that I haven't seen. Like I, I'm a fan of his as well. Like the first yeah. time I came across his stuff was Hush. Like that would have been brilliant film as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, just came across that and really enjoyed that on Netflix the one day. And then I went back and watched Oculus, which I quite enjoyed half of. Uh, the, it's okay. And then, yeah, it wasn't too it bad. It goes off the rails a little bit for me, yeah. Oculus. He's, yeah. 
when it was it Ouija two, the sequel two. was really way better than it deserved to be because I never bothered watching the. F- I saw the trailer for the first one and I'd heard pretty poor reviews, but because I knew he directed that follow up, yeah. I yeah. checked it out and I I really enjoyed that yeah. as well. I never watched the first Ouija, but I have that and I watched it and I thought it was great. It was yeah. a great film. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, he's really he's a really interesting director. He's definitely. I recently recently watched The Haunting of Hill House um, and it t- it took me two years to get around to it. Um, oh, really? But I watched it maybe a month ago mm-hmm. and I was loving it until the very last episode, the kind of the last 25 minutes of the last mm. episode. And I felt it disappointed me a little bit with the ending. But okay. I loved it up until then. I was, I was entertained. I was, I love his camera work and how he has this way of panning the camera very slowly and it just increases your anxiety because you're expecting the jump scare but because you don't always get the jump scare it just makes any time there's a even a little one it makes it 10 times scarier you know yeah um and i think that's the proper way to do it you know i think horror films sometimes rely too heavily on the jump scare and they'll give it to you all the time so then the fifth one isn't as scary anymore you know mm-hmm. but if you tease if they tease you with it i think <laughs> mike flanagan is good with a bit of teasing <laughs> Daniel Isn't Real is a beautifully made sinister take on the imaginary friend alter ego concept, explored in previous movies like Harvey, Magic, Drop Dead Fred and Fight Club to name a few. Miles Robbins wonderfully plays troubled teen Luke, who as a child witnessed a traumatic event leading him to meet his imaginary friend Daniel. Various events lead to this long forgotten imaginary friend now appearing once again in his life, but this time played with smarmy charm by Patrick Schwarzenegger. The movie sets off from there, as we watch Luke initially grow in confidence due to Daniel's return, but then find aspects about the friendship and unlocked areas of his own character troubling. What sets Daniel isn't real apart is the fact it makes a bold decision to deviate from the psychological aspects of its alter ego Jekyll and Hyde scenario into realms of horror more in tune with something along the lines of Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Director Adam Egypt Mortimer, along with his crew, create a film with such style and effort it elevates it above any other horror I've seen this year. Lyle Vincent's cinematography, along with the movie's unsettling fleshy visuals, remind me of the same waking nightmare atmosphere created in movies like Jacob's Ladder and Society. Compared to most recent movies within the genre, the film refreshingly focuses on character development, along with a restrained and very effective development of dread. But unlike most recent examples that meet that mould, Daniel Isn't Real is not ashamed to be an out-and-out horror movie when it counts, leaving you with many unsettling images and scenes that will linger long after the movie is finished. It's my top selection of Halloween movies this year, and a horror film well worth checking out. Yes, yeah, so uh, I guess I'll just finish this off a little bit with some honourable mentions I've got since I've gone through quite a few things this month, cool. horror theme-wise. Uh, yeah, I'll just list them off for you. So Teen Girl versus Convict's Revenge Romp Becky. Uh, <laughs> that sounds incredible. <laughs> yes, well, we're checking out. Uh, Airbnb Stalk and Slasher The Rental. 
VHS dating psychodrama Rent-A-Pal. Um, Frodo with father issues in Come to Daddy. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, paranoid apartment block torment in 1BR. And then finally, just for the sheer ridiculous fun of it, uh, uh, Zoom call lockdown seance flick host. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. So add them to your list as well. I will. Are, are a few of them on Shudder? Uh, let me have a look. So, um, I mean, host is on Shudder and come to daddy is also on Shudder, but Becky, the rental, what's the service? Uh, I mispronounced the service. I think it was called Ratukan or I, I always oh, think it's Rakuten, like, a, yeah, yeah, I think it's like street fighter, like Ratukan. <laughs> that's, that's how I think you pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you can check out. Becky on that 100%, possibly the rental, and then the other ones I'm not 100% on. But yeah, good fun. Excellent. Um, Shall we just mention to the listener before we go, actually, that as this is a special, just to let you know, we've got something hopefully exciting to announce for you in that we're going to be releasing some shorter little clips in between broadcasts of, sorry, yeah, in between these broadcasts of our hour-long monthly episodes. We're going to hopefully have some five-minute reviews for you that we'll post out at different intervals yep. as a new concept. So, yeah, we should have a review section come along and we'll be posting them up when they come. So keep posted for those. Yep. Could be movies, could be books, could be comics, could be TV shows. Yeah. be all of that. It'll be a big mix. Uh, it's very similar to the themes of the, the monthly episodes. So I hope you enjoyed that, everybody. Um, enjoy the rest of your spooky watching um if you're anything like us you'll probably keep on doing it through to the end of this month anyway so oh yes yeah plenty to enjoy until we veer into holiday classics on december 1st we'll be (laughs) continuing with some spook fests yeah definitely okay so thanks again for listening take care and we'll chat to you all soon thanks everyone happy spooks happy spooks bye-bye dedicated listener to getting right to the end there right to finish you off for any horror fans who would like to delve deeper and discover more i recommend for you this wonderful book by kim newman called nightmare movies full of lots of things you may have never heard about before and also on shudder a wonderful documentary that's epic four and a half hours long of the history of 80s horror called in search of darkness well worth checking out And also, for anyone interested in horror comics, I'd urge you to check out Image Comics' website, probably the best source of independent horror comics. They have genre tabs with horror, psychological horror, psychological thriller, black and white, dark, all that good stuff. And you can check out their comics on Comixology app if you want to read digitally or pick up little paperbacks in your local comic shop, local bookshop, wherever you see fit.